I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. At the Point Church, we have a very high view of Scripture, and so I hope every week that you'll bring at least the digital form of it, uh, the Scriptures with you. And today we're going to begin a series in the book of Hebrews. So would you grab your copy of God's Word? If you don't have one, uh, we have some Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love to give you one as a gift if you'll take it and read it and use it, all right? Uh, Maybe you have a phone or a tablet. Uh, Just look up the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now, I remind you today, we started back with our children's ministry next door. Uh, Basically, today is third grade and down. We have workers over there prepared to receive the kids into their rooms. And then uh, every other Sunday, uh, we'll have a, a meeting for fourth and fifth graders. That's uh, kind of an important thing to me because my daughter Lexi's in the fourth grade. And so every other week, they'll be going out for a Bible time uh, right now. Uh, but each Sunday, moving forward up through third grade, uh, we'll just go ahead and begin next door. So parents, uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, as that begins today. I hope you have a couple things in your hand. Uh, One thing would be the copy of God's Word, and then secondly, in just a few minutes, at the end of my message, we're going to take communion together, and I hope you received one uh, when you came in. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1. Today, a new series entitled, Jesus is Better Than. Jesus is Better Than Anything. I want to read the text for you, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. I'm actually going to read uh, through the entire chapter. I would just encourage you uh, that uh, during this study uh, to come prepared, uh, I would encourage you to read through the text each week. So next week, uh, we'll be in chapter 2. You know, in seminary, they teach you that when you sit down to study a text, the first place you go is not a commentary or somebody's opinion, The first place you go is to the text itself, sit there and read it about ten times, and then pray over it and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you and show you uh, what's in the text. So I would just say to you, church, if you want to maybe make Sunday a a little bit more of a priority, uh, take the time during the week as we walk through Hebrews to just read through the chapter, familiarize yourself with it, and then on Sunday it'll kind of maybe come together a little better and uh, make a little bit more sense. I will tell you uh, that you're going to have to give your best ears and your best attention as we go through this book. I've never preached through it before. Uh, There are some challenging passages. I told the early service, I'm going to guess there are probably going to be some nights when you're going to see my office light on late. Uh, When we get particularly into chapter 6 through 10, uh, some of the interpretations and things that are in there uh, are are quite interesting and quite challenging. And so what I want to do today is I want to spend just a minute kind of unpacking an introduction to kind of set the table, okay, to set the table for the book, and then I'm very quickly going to walk through uh, Hebrews chapter 1 with you. Here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And this is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 1. May we pray together. God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what it has meant to me as I have studied it. My heart, my desire cries out today to exalt the name of Jesus. To lift Jesus up in the sermon. Not the preacher, but Jesus and the text. May Christ be lifted up. I pray that eternal fruit would be born as we dig into the scriptures for just a few minutes. Remind us that none of here... None of us are here by accident, but we are here by divine providence to hear the word of the Lord. And so we pray that you would change us, make us more like Christ, mold us more into the image of Jesus as we look at Christ high and lifted up. And as we go through this series, lift us all up to a place where we can truly say, not with lip service, but from our hearts, that Jesus is better than anything. And I pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. I, I really do hate to lose. I have a very competitive spirit. And I would say that through the years, my daughter Rebecca and I, who might be listening in Atlanta, I don't know, uh, she and I have had some good debates through the years. And uh, I don't want her to know this, but she's actually won some of them. I've won a few, but she's won some as well. And to be honest, I really hate it when she wins. Uh, we had a debate several years ago, and we were going back and forth over a period of time as to which was better, the iPhone or the Samsung. 
Now, I was in the Samsung world, and I was a very loyal, dedicated Samsung uh, customer. I felt like the operating system and so forth was better. As a matter of fact, after the first system today, I had a Samsung fan remind me. They think it still is, but that's uh, besides the point. So we're going back and forth, and, and I'm having to rebuild my phone and so forth. And, and on a day when I was really frustrated, and at the end of my wits, Rebecca, with a smirky smile, just said, I've been telling you, I've been telling you the iPhone is better, and... I decided to give in, to swallow my pride, and to give her a chance. So I went and got me an iPhone. And I must confess, please, please don't get up and walk out on me right now, but, but I have to confess to you, I had no idea what I was missing out on. In a short period of time, I concluded that the iPhone was better. And I just want to say to all of you who are wandering around in the Samsung wilderness today, to some of you are going, nope, I'm not going there. I learned, in my opinion, that there was something better, that I was just holding on to. There was actually something that was better. You know, the truth is that we all spend our lives comparing. We compare things. How many of you men have ever gotten to a big discussion about Ford or Chevy? Which one is better? Uh, if we were to take a poll right now in this room, some of you would say the Ford pickup. Others would say the Chevy pickup, while the rest of us would say we just want a pickup that runs, right? We don't care what model it is. We debate over things like, uh, you know, Pepsi or Coke or, or our favorite sports team. Is, is my team better than your team? And that's certainly this time of the year uh, for football fans because the season is just getting started. But the point of that is, is that we often feel like that our opinion or our thing is better than someone else. I want to tell you today at the beginning of this series that on every page, in every chapter in the book of Hebrews, there is a theme that is screaming at us, and it is this, Jesus is better than anything and everything. Jesus is better than you name it. He's better than any trip. He's better than any theological thought. He's better than any preacher or pastor. He's better than any denomination. He's better than any angel. He's better than any hero of the faith. Jesus is just straight up better. The book of Hebrews has been called by some the fifth gospel as it speaks so much of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There are 13 chapters in the book that we're going to walk through, a letter that was written between the years 60 and 69. Now, I know that when I give that date, some of you are going to say, okay, I'll forget that by the time I go to bed tonight. But, but the date of this letter is very important because on into the book, several chapters, it makes a reference to the temple that is still standing in Jerusalem. And we know from history that the temple was destroyed in the year 70 A.D. So this book was written somewhere between 60 and 69 A.D. before the destruction of the temple. Now, if you begin to study and read just a little bit, you're going to find out that there are a lot of opinions about who wrote the book of Hebrews. 
Traditionally through the years, uh, you may have a Bible, a study Bible that uh, would suggest to you that the author is the Apostle Paul. And I would say that's certainly possible, but there have been a lot of uh, scholars that have said, well, probably not because of a variety of reasons. There are some who've made the case that Apollos wrote uh, Hebrews, some that Peter wrote the book of Hebrews. I kind of land in the area that maybe Dr. Luke wrote the book of Hebrews, and primarily because of a book I read several years ago entitled The Lucan Authorship of Hebrews. And this is very important because the author points out that in this book there are seven medical terms that are used in the writing. Now that's interesting because we know that Luke was a doctor and in all of Paul's writings, he never uses any of those seven terms. Now I'm not here today to convince you of that. I want to be very clear and say that that it's not important that you and I are able to identify a human author in the book of Hebrews. The most important thing is that we know the divine author, God Almighty, inspired this book And it is included for us in the canon of Scripture, therefore it is profitable and we should spend some time in it and studying it. There's very strong agreement that this letter was written to a small group of Jewish people. Now we don't know the destination. Some say it was a group of Jews that lived in Rome. Some said uh, it's some Jews that live just outside of Jerusalem, while others say to a group of Jews in Antioch of Syria. We don't know the exact location, but it is a consensus that this letter is written to a Jewish audience. Now give me your best ears for just a minute. When we study a book in the Bible, we always need to wrestle with the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why of the text. It is very important as we dive into verse number one that we always keep in the back of our mind that this letter was written to a Jewish audience because that will help us as we study through it. Now, let's think about that Jewish audience for just a minute. There are primarily three groups of people that we'll find and they'll be identified throughout the book that is inside that little group. Okay, y'all with me? Three groups inside the little group. Group number one is Hebrew Christians who are Hebrews that have become Christians. Okay, so the Hebrew people looking for the Messiah. Jesus comes, he dies on the cross, he's buried, he rises from the grave on the third day, he ascends back into heaven. So there's a portion of this group that believes, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Group number two is a group of people that are Hebrew, and very likely they had made some type of mental ascent to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're thinking, uh, they're accepting, or maybe believing that This could be true, but it has not moved from their head down into their heart. Group number three are those Jews that you find all throughout the Gospels that absolutely reject Christ, reject the Gospel, because to this day, the Jewish people would say, there's no way the Messiah is going to come and lose like Jesus did. When Jesus died on the cross and he suffered and breathed his last breath to the Jewish people that totally disqualified him as the Messiah because their Messiah would only come 
to rule and to reign, to be a king, and to deliver them from their oppressors. Now let me bring those three things as a background into this room. As we start this study today, I know this, in this room there's three groups of people. Group number one, you may not be Hebrew, but you are a Christian. Anybody thankful today that you're a Christian? Can we rejoice for just a minute that the gospel made it to us? That there are people around the world who have never heard the name Jesus. Have never heard the death, burial, and resurrection. Have never been offered the opportunity to acknowledge that they're a sinner. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess their sin. You see, you and I are privileged in that the gospel made it to us. And so we sit here today, our eyes have been opened, our hearts have been opened. We have believed and we have received Christ. And I say to this larger group of people that there's a lot in this book for us. There's a key verse in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 12. Look on the screen. That speaks to everyone in the room that's a Christian. Here it is. The writer says to the Christians, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So in other words, there's a group in the church, they're Christians, but they're not growing in their relationship with Christ. And and this is a challenge in this book. You're going to find it in multiple places He's saying there are people in the church or around the group, the body, who are saying, where's my class and where's my teacher? When what they ought to be saying is, who around me can I teach, lead, and disciple? In other words, there's some immature Christians. Now, let me say this. To me, it's very clear in the book, based off of chapter 13 and verse 22, that the writer of this book is not writing to just scold and hammer. The Holy Spirit's going to bring the conviction from the text. But the writer says this, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. The writer says, lay hold of the encouragement I'm trying to give you. Christians, though this book is theological and challenging in a lot of ways, I promise you, I give you my word that when we come out of chapter 13, you are going to be so encouraged and you're going to be saying with a loud, triumphant voice that Jesus is better than anything. Let's look into the text, can we? In the text, there's two things I want to show you real quick. The book of Hebrews begins with a bang. Here it is. You ready? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the Son of God, the Savior of the world. How is Jesus revealed? In verse number 1, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Now, man, I'm telling you, this verse right here, you just, okay, let's, all right, no, no, here, let that ring your bell for just a minute, all right? I want you to think for a second that God spoke. How powerful that is. You see, I'm not a deist. (laughs) I'm not a deist that believes there is a God, that God threw everything into place, he set everything into motion, and then he backed away to let it Let it run on its own without interacting with His creation. Oh no, friends. This text reminds us that God 
has spoken, and I would add, and is speaking into creation. God spoke. Just those two words is a very powerful thought. How did he speak? Well, let me give you two things. One, when we think about his revelation to mankind, we know that Romans chapter 1 says he has revealed himself to every human being. That's what the scripture says. How has he done that? When you walk out those doors in just a few minutes, just look up at the sky that's a little bit sunny today that won't be that way the next three or four days. Look at the sun. Look at the clouds. Look at the trees. Listen to the birds singing in the air. You know what creation is shouting today? There is a God. And God is revealing himself to mankind. The second way we see revelation is in specific revelation. You see it here in verse number 1, in that the prophets of old spoke to the fathers and gave them a message directly from God. If you know anything about your Bible, you recognize names like Isaiah, right? Hosea, Ezekiel, Malachi, Habakkuk, Jonah, Obadiah. God communicated directly to his prophets so that they would communicate with mankind. How did God communicate? Well, it says that he created them and then he communicated with them in a variety of ways. Does anybody remember in your Bible reading how God communicated with Moses? He created or he communicated to him through a burning bush, right? It says that God communicated to Elijah through a still, small voice. Isaiah chapter 6, God communicates with the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah has a heavenly vision and he looks and he sees that long white train and he sees the cherubims flying around the throne of God giving him praise, glory, and honor. And Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. God spoke to Hosea by a family crisis in Hosea chapter 1. How about this? God spoke to Amos in Amos chapter 8 through a fruit basket. How unique is that? How many of you can say that God has spoken to you, not audibly, but he's clearly spoken to you in a variety of ways in your life? Sometimes he uses something, a circumstance, or an event, but you know that God is speaking to you. Now back to the text. The specific revelation comes through the prophets to the fathers. And what's interesting to me is that when God communicates, sometimes it's just in bits and pieces. You know, God doesn't always just reveal everything and make everything clear. After all, the essence of faith is what? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidenced by the things that are not seen. In other words, if you were to just take your Bible and read it from cover to cover and understand it all, what part of faith would play in that? Are y'all tracking with me? God has spoken through visions. He's spoken through angels in the scriptures. He's spoken through weather events. He's spoken through miracles. The amazing point is this, is that God has spoken. And for you and I today, God does not speak to us audibly unless you're reading the Bible out loud than he is. God has spoken to us through his word. God has spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the person. Look at verse number two. It says, in the last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Now, what are the last days? 
for the last several centuries. Growing up as a kid, I'm 48. Both of my grandfathers were pastors. And I've heard, I've heard message after message after message on the coming, the imminent return of Christ in the last days. And, and, and I'm sure, I was thinking in my office this week, that back in 1918 when the Spanish flu hit, can you imagine? I'm sure pastors were up in the pulpit and they were saying, "This can't you look around you and see the Lord's coming back soon? And here we are a hundred years later in the middle of another one, and I'm still preaching that Christ could return at any minute, right? So what are the last days? The last days simply represent the time frame after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. You and I are living right now in the time frame of the last days. And in these last days, you know what has been revealed to us? Before we had a complete canon of Scripture, our lovely Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, came to this earth and was born in a manger. And He grew up and He lived 34 perfect years. And He went to the cross and He died for us. God revealed Himself to us through His Son. Notice what the text says. I'm going to move fast, so keep your eyes in the text, all right? The text says that Christ is the Son. He is the Son of God. Christ is the appointed heir. That means that Christ is preeminent over all. Paul said that in Colossians chapter 1. He talked about the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is greater and better than everything. How about this? Jesus Christ is creator. It says at the end of verse number 2 that he created the world. Uh, We see that in Colossians 1 and John chapter 1. I love this next phrase in verse number 3. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. You know what that word radiance means? It means the dawn of a new day. Daybreak. I I like what one author said. He said Jesus is the radiance. He's He's the rays of the sun. And the Son is the Father. Jesus is the glory, the glory of the Father revealed to us. Keep going though, it gets better. Jesus Christ is God. The text says He is the imprint. He is the exact imprint, which means He is the, he's the stamp. He's the exact representation. He is deity. In other words, Jesus has the same divine substance as the Father. So, Jesus is God. A couple of weeks ago, we alluded to this new study coming out in the evangelical church. 31% of people say Jesus was a good teacher, but Jesus wasn't God. All you've got to do is open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. And it shows us very clearly that Jesus is God, the God-man. He is deity. Not only that, Christ is the sustainer. It says that He upholds the world. He carries, He bears the weight of the load. Church, I remind you right now, while you're sitting here, Jesus is at work holding it all together. How many of you ever felt like things are falling apart? Maybe it's your work, in your family. In our society, in the world that we're living in today, man, it's, it, I heard someone say the other day, it's coming unglued. Our grandfather used to say that a lot. It's coming unglued. 
I got good news for you today. God spoke to my heart sitting in my office this week, and he reminded me, Tim, listen to me, son. You do not bear the load and the weight of holding it all together. Man, that's good. That takes some pressure off, doesn't it? Because you know who holds it all together? Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, he holds it all together. Christ is our Redeemer. Look at that next phrase. When Christ came, he came to make purification for sins. You know what? The supreme act of grace is that Christ came and He dealt with our sin problem. In just a minute, we're going to take communion together where Christ told us to do this often as a remembrance to remind us of what Jesus did for us when, when He went to the cross. And, and we'll get into this later on in the book, so, so I don't need to get too excited and preach too much right here. But, but Jesus came as the Lamb of God to, to no longer cover the sins, but to forgive the sins of the world past, present, and future. He came to purify us. And then what did He do? He ascended back into heaven. Where is Jesus now? What does the text say? That he sat down, after the ascension, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When you read about the right hand in the scripture, it's always a position of authority. Always. Do you remember James and John's mother came to Jesus in the Gospels and said, Master, Master, here's what I want. I want you to put my two sons on your right side. What was she saying? I want my boys to have a position of authority. Because the right hand represents authority. Friends, I remind you that when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, He was seated in the place where He has all authority in heaven and on earth. So, so this section of Hebrews is one of the greatest summaries of Jesus in the New Testament. Hear me today. When you're reading through your Bible, Moses was great, and Isaiah was great, and Jonah was great, but Jesus is so much better the person of Jesus let me move to my second and final point in verse number four the author makes a very interesting pivot to compare Jesus to the angels did y'all catch that when I was reading the text a minute ago wouldn't it be a fair question to ask why in the world does he start chasing a rabbit about angels now someone had told me that I think it was Dr. David Jeremiah had recently done a, a series on angels uh, that they had listened to that was very good. I've never, I've never done a, a study on the angels. Uh, we certainly see them periodically throughout the Scripture and certain things that they do. And, and the Bible certainly says that we have entertained angels unaware. But why would the writer, again, writing to a Jewish audience, why would he chase this rabbit about angels? It's because that Jewish people valued angels. They held angels in very high regard to a word or a message or a declaration because the angels were responsible for delivering the Torah. And so the Jewish people were, oh, angels, where are the angels? How do we get in touch with the angels? And I don't know, there might be a little bit of that in Christianity today. If it maybe I don't know anybody like this, but let me just make this statement. If you know, if you're not careful, maybe you'll get off in this, man, I want to figure out the spirit world and so forth, and you'll take your eyes off Jesus. 
hey, can I just go ahead and chase another rabbit right now? A Christian has no business reading a horoscope. None, zero, zilch. You have no business reading a tarot card. None, zero, zilch. You, you have no reason to pray or to get in touch with your guardian angel. Okay? When you do that, you know what you're saying? Those things are better than I've got Jesus and Jesus is enough. Jesus is better than a horoscope. Jesus is better than a tarot card. Jesus is better than anything. And the writer here is saying, Jesus is better than angels. What's wrong with y'all? Look at it, look at it real quick. I've got to go fast. Verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. A, a quote back to Psalm chapter 2 and verse number 7, where in a messianic text written about David, it gives the picture of Jesus being the begotten son of God, monogenes, the begotten son. Look at me, John chapter 3 verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does that word mean? The word firstborn that we'll see here in just a minute. There was never a moment when Jesus was created. There was never a moment after his creation that the father said, you know what, I'm going to give you a good job here. That never happened. The word begotten is not about time. The word begotten is about the fact that Jesus is the one and the only. And there is no one like him. Never has been and never will be. Somebody needs to say amen right there. In the second half of that verse, he quotes 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 14. Where Nathan gives some words to David from God. And in these words, it contains a promise that Solomon would come after David, after he dies, and it would be Solomon who builds the temple. And God promised that he would be David's father forever and that David would be his son. It is a picture of the relationship of the heavenly father with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving quickly. Verse number 6. In verse number 6, here's this reference to the firstborn. You see that in uh, Colossians chapter 1 as well. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he will tell the angels to worship the firstborn. Now some say this is a reference to Psalm 97. Others say it's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 32. But in my studies, I came across something that, that really filled me up. And I believe it's very likely that this is a reference to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, at the birth announcement when our Lord and Savior was born, when the angels visited the shepherds in the field, and they gave them the announcement, and then they said, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. In other words, the angels are subservient to Jesus and they lift Christ up. The angels are not equal with Jesus. Verse number 7, we're moving fast, is a reference to Psalm 104 and verse 4. Psalm 104.4, showing that Jesus has power over angels and their roles. Those words, winds and Flames of fire are a reference to God's purposes for their existence. Now hear me, this is very important for us today because we all need to embrace that, understand that, and accept that, 
that God has a purpose and a plan for everything and everyone that he created. And so the angels have a specific role that they will fulfill along with God's purposes. Look at verse number 8. It is a quote from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, about the throne of God being settled forever. Almost a direct, exact quote. That Jesus is on the throne forever. Look at me, church. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that an angel is sitting on a throne. It only says the Father and the Son are seated on the throne. What do we see about angelic beings? They are gathered around the throne, right? And they're worshiping and they're giving praise and glory to Jesus. I'll come back to that in just a minute at the end of my sermon. Here's Jesus. He is the one who rules and reigns with the scepter of righteousness. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. He's been anointed with the oil of gladness. Very likely a reference to Psalm 16 and verse 11 about him being seated at the right hand. Verse 16 or chapter 16 verse 11 says that at the right hand of the Father there are pleasures forevermore. Verses 10 through 12. Is a reference to Psalm 102, 25 to 27, almost an exact quotation where it says of Jesus that Jesus laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Notice verse 26, they will perish. Did Jesus not say that in Matthew 24, 35, that heaven and earth will pass away? He goes on to say, or make the analogy here, to give some, some mental imagery for those who are reading this letter to say, you are focused on things that are temporary. You are focused on things that are passing away. They will perish, but you will remain, speaking of Christ. They will all wear out like a garment. You know what? Our clothes grow old and they wear out, right? Unless you were living in the wilderness during those 40 years, and I don't know about you, but I'm glad I wasn't. It says their shoes and their clothes didn't wear out. They lasted during that whole time. So our clothes wear out. They get too old or they maybe get too small. I don't know. He goes on to say a robe, a cloak, a coat. What do we do with that here in the south, here in, in this area? You know, sometimes we don't even have a winter. You know, there are people that live in spots in our country and the world that actually need a coat, right? What do you do with your coat? You take your coat and you store it away, right? You, you just pull it out when you need it. You put it back in the closet or in some kind of storage, and you bring it out when you need it. It comes and it goes. What is the picture here in verses 11 and 12? It is of Christ who is the same whose years will never end. Things come and things go and things change, but Christ remains the same. Let that encourage you today. What does the future look like? I can tell you right now, things are going to change. There's going to be some good and there's going to be some bad. There's going to be some hills and there's going to be some valleys. We're going to get older we're going to get grayer. If Christ has not returned, some of us will pass off of this earth into glory to be with Christ. Things change. But friends, I'm glad to tell you today that our Savior, Christ, never changes. He remains the same. And Jesus will always stand high and lifted up.
I love verse number 13. Love, love, love verse 13. One of the great, hear me, I'm almost done. One of the great messianic Jesus passages, Trinity passages in the Old Testament is quoted in verse number 13. I love the writer. He says, hey, let me ask y'all something. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit right here beside me, son, and I'm going to make your enemies your footstool? In Psalms 110, it says that Yahweh says to Adonai, it's a beautiful text, the Father has a conversation with the Son. Yahweh says to Adonai, Jesus, the Father says to Jesus, sit right here beside me and I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, let this ring your bell, when Jesus died on the cross and the devil was laughing and the enemy thought that he had defeated Christ on the third day, the Father made his enemy, Jesus, footstool. In other words, he conquered them. He conquered death, hell, and the grave, and he came out with the keys victoriously. Forty days later, he ascended right back to his position at the throne, at the right hand of the Father, where he is seated there today, and he is making intercession for us. Man, that's good. He finishes up in verse 14, reminding them that though there are many spots and there are many roles, the angels have a role. Their role is in ministering to Christians, right? Isn't that what it says in verse 14? The ministering spirits are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This verse reminds us that Jesus has a spot and a role that is like no one else. You see, Jesus is better. <laughs> He's just better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. And that's why He deserves all the praise, all the worship, all the glory, all the honor, all the obedience in our life. He deserves it all. Would you stand with me for just a second? We're going to wrap up this part of the sermon this way. I was sitting in my office studying, and my mind began to think about the angels. Begin to think about the angels and the ministry of Christ. And my mind immediately went to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And I want you just to say these two verses with me out loud as it puts in perspective Jesus and the angels. Alright? This is a picture of what's going to happen. As we gather around the throne of God with the angels, this is what's going to happen. Read it with me. In John's vision, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures, and of the elders, their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb 
who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. What is this verse saying? This verse is saying that the angels by the thousands are gathered around the throne of God and they're crying out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered. He was slain. And He has received all power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. You know what Christians are supposed to do today? We're supposed to mirror this scene and we're to say Jesus is worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain.